Okay, I'm ready now. <laughs> Hello, Adrian. Hey, Angelique. I'm Adrian Lee Tarver. And I'm Angelique Owens. And we are the hosts of the National Academy podcast, Exquisite Corpse. This podcast is a series of conversations between artists and architects who've been elected by their peers to the National Academy of Design for their extraordinary contributions to art and culture in America. These are the National Academicians, and they are at the core of the oldest artist-run organization in the United States. This is Exquisite Corpse. So welcome back to the podcast. This is the last episode of season four, and we're bringing together two painters. You love a good painter. I do. I love a good <laughs> painting conversation. I could talk about paint all day. Honestly. But before we get into it, as always, our historical acknowledgement. Hi, my name is Roshana Nabi, and I'm the development manager at the National Academy of Design. The National Academy of Design was initiated by artists and architects to fill a void in the American artistic landscape of the 19th century. But we recognize our history has excluded many communities and cultures whose lineages and practices must be included in this country's art historical canon. Indigenous peoples, people of color, queer and non-binary individuals, and people with different abilities. We are committed to a process of dismantling the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and white supremacy. We are excited to move forward and have conversations that reflect the important questions and issues of today. We are the National Academy of Design, and you are listening to Exquisite Corpse. All right. We can't wait for you all to hear this. We have Elena Sisto and Carol Dunham. I love these episodes where people are meeting each other for the first time. I think it's really special for us to be able to provide that platform and space for them to speak for the first time, but also for the audience to hear what could potentially be the beginning of a long friendship. Like, it was really cool how Carol was saying how they kind of ran around the same circles, like in the downtown Manhattan scene, and they just never crossed paths. Yeah, and I think there's this element where they clearly have become familiar with each other's work. And so there's inherently all these really interesting things that they have in common to speak about or, you know, to understand where they overlap and how they're thinking about their work. It's a special experience to get to meet somebody and get to sort of dive into something deeply immediately. Yes, exactly. I think it was really cool hearing them speak about painting and seeing the similarities that they had about these different topics. And so I definitely learned a ton. Yeah. Well, I always love a painting conversation, so I'm excited. Let's get into it. Hi, I'm Elena Sisto, and I'm a painter, and I live in New York City and Milan, New York. I'm Carol Dunham. Uh, I'm an artist. I live in Cornwall, Connecticut, where I am presently located. Thank you both. So first, thank you both for participating. I'm really excited to have both of you on the podcast. As always, we ask somebody to participate in the podcast. And the whole chain of this is that we ask who you'd like to talk to. So I reached out to Elena Sisto and I asked you, Elena, who you would like to speak to. 
And you chose Carol Dunham. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose Carol? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. I went to your lecture at the studio school, Carol, and was very impressed by it. Not that that was the first time I ever saw your work. I've known your work for a long time. But there were a few things that you said that really struck me. And one of them was that you were talking about how much trouble you had painting a face, which I thought was very funny because I was something I was struggling with at the time. That's a more superficial thing. But I guess I've always been really impressed with how brave your work is. I don't know a lot about you. I just know what I've read. And a couple of people I know know you, like Alexi Worth and I forget who else. But anyway, I know our backgrounds are very different culturally, but I feel like there's a lot that we have in common coming from very different places. But I feel like your work is so brave. I think you take incredible risks in your work and you don't have to, given what I know about your background. I think you could have done a lot of different things with your work, but I think you describe yourself somewhat as having come from somewhat privileged background, white, male, wasp, etc., good schools. You could have eased into a whole different kind of career with your work. And I think you've really consistently done exactly what you felt like doing, regardless of what a lot of other people would be controlled by, outside forces, the market other people's opinions, et cetera. You know, that's something that I feel very strongly about. So when I went to your lecture afterwards, I was standing outside and I was talking to Roberta Smith and I said to her, you know, he makes me feel like a real wuss. And she turned around and smiled at me. She gave me this big smile. I don't know if she remembers, would remember. And then I thought to myself, well, I guess I just gave myself a challenge. <laughs> Because I felt like I was not taking the freedoms that I could. And I remember I felt that once before when I was much younger, I went to China in 1981. And I was with my father who was invited there by the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And it was the first time I'd ever been in a situation like that where there was no, you know, no freedom of speech we met people that were engineers. We didn't meet people who were guides. And we went with two other Chinese people who hadn't been back there since before the revolution. And I, I remember thinking that when people spoke, they would speak the party line, but you would actually hear, consciously almost hear, the opposite of what they were saying. So if they said black, you would hear white. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because they had to say certain things in order not to get in trouble with the government, but you knew exactly how they felt about it personally. And I realized that I had really not taken my opportunity living in the United States to take advantage of my freedom of speech, I guess. And that was the first time I had that feeling. And then the second time was after I saw your, your lecture. I mean, I had seen your work before, so it wasn't like it was a huge revelation to me. So because of that one experience and that feeling, I started following your work a lot more. And I realized that we have a lot in common. In fact, I actually made a list of some of the things we have in common. Well, I'd like to hear that. I'd be happy to read that. But um, 
the more I read the list, the more I realized we had in common, the more I realized that the one thing that we don't have in common is that you are a man and I'm not a man. I don't even say I'm a woman. I say I'm not a man. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You have certain things to your advantage that I have not had to my advantage. I mean, I feel like I have been swimming upstream most of my life, and, and it's taken a long time for me to even get to a point where men especially understand my work. I mean, in the beginning when I was working, I would have terrible experiences with showing my work to men. Like, for instance, I showed my, when I first wanted to start showing my work, I went to Alan Frumpkin and I showed him my work. Remember, he used to see people's work on Thursdays. And he looked at my work and he said, I don't know what this is. I don't want to show this work and no one else is going to show it either. And that was like, that was the beginning for me of sort of trying to swim upstream well, I mean, to make a long story short, I knew that there was a lot of things that I had to do to make my work more readable to other people, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been my process. All I would say is that I'm very touched by that take on what I do. It's hard to see oneself in the way that you're describing having seen me, but I appreciate it a lot. I think when you reached out about this podcast, the reason I was intrigued and wanted to do it, I think, is because I think probably, I don't know how long ago, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been very difficult to see any particular commonalities between our different activities. But I've been aware over the last, I'm going to say 10 or 15 years, that artists that are, you and I are roughly the same age, probably passed each other in the same markets over the years, went to the same bars. I mean, who knows? But we're obviously part of completely different scenes within the downtown art community. And I'm finding of late, of relatively recently in my life, that artists that I probably wouldn't have expected to be too interested in what I do and didn't think too much about myself are starting to have strange overlaps with things that have become kind of central to my concerns. And I've been aware of your work for a long time in a kind of a way that I'm aware of a lot of people's work who I haven't brought my direct focus to. And I had started to think about it and certain other artists, our general peer group, I was already aware that it was something I should be more tuned into when you got in touch with me. So That was sort of interesting to me, and I thought we should see what would come out of it. Well, that's nice. I'm I'm glad to hear that you are actually aware of my work, and it's a nice overlap. I know that you have started crossing over in your work with people like Kyle Staver and... um, Yeah, Kyle's a good example of someone whose work I, I didn't know Kyle or her work until five years ago. I don't know. And I doubt, when she and I have talked about this, I very much doubt that at earlier points in our life, we would have found a whole lot of overlap in our interests. Yeah. We started with completely different ideas about what painting was for, why do it, who had done it that was important, all that stuff that a young artist needs in order to get traction and get going. Mm -hmm. We started with completely different premises, but somehow... In, at least on one level, on the level of subject matter. Mm-hmm. The two activities seem to move toward each other in a way that is quite surprising 
to me, and I suspect to her too. You and I might refer to light falling, but I don't think either of us actually make light fall on a, on a form. Or another way of saying it is, if you put a sun in the sky, it's not emitting light. It's more of a symbol or a sign than a physical reality. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. your, your figures don't really have a surface and neither do mine. No, and I, I know, I can't speak for you, yeah. but I know for my own part, my so-called figurative paintings have nothing to do with that tradition in a certain way. They're made up. You know, they're completely fabricated things that only have a reality within the world of painting and drawing. So sometimes I think that a lot of the way my work looks is just a sum of my various lacks, you know. I have a lack of skill, a lack of training, a lack of any kind of deep background in oil painting, nothing like that. So really my relationship to painting is much more like a person who's determined to do something because they think it would be an interesting thing to do uh -huh. more than having learned how to do it, so to speak. Yeah, there is no how to do it. No, no, there isn't. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes it takes a long time to figure that out. And I knew, <laughs> I, it was pretty clear to me from the beginning that I had no idea how to do it and that that represented something very deeply appealing to me. Right. And I think it's a different way to get to some of the things that I've been involved with than if one were to start as a young person, oh, you know, being told, always told you have this wonderful ability. And uh, I mean, I have friends who have been drawing since they were 10 years old. That's not me. I mean, I've been drawing, but I wasn't drawing in a way that grown-ups would say, oh, you're a talented kid. <laughs> they might have said you're a weird kid, yeah. but they wouldn't say, you know, they wouldn't say you were a talented yeah. kid. They wouldn't. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah. So in, in many ways, my relationship to painting is just pure willpower. I mean, I don't think it can be that in the end, real, psychologically, but it feels like that a lot of the time. I feel something similar, which is that when I... I Right from kindergarten, my teachers would say that I was talented, but I feel like I can't draw or paint well unless so many things come together at the moment, which have to do with what the subject matter is, having found, you know, the right place in myself where I actually have, like, not a true sort of inspiration, not inspiration, but I have something inside of me makes me feel like it's necessary. Like if I just tried to sit down and draw a flower, I can't do it. You know, it would come out super clunky. But if I'm in that mode where everything is working right, I've got the right medium, I've got the right place, it's the right time, I'm not hungry, I'm not sleepy, I know what the context intellectually is of my subject matter, and I can get to that 20 minutes that Gustin talks about, you know, have you ever heard him talk about that where he says there's 20 minutes in every painting where you actually make the painting? Hmm. If I can get to that place, I feel like I can be very articulate and not supple, but it can flow for lack of a better word. But I can't just turn that on. You know, I'm not also not the kid that like everyone would say. Like my daughter, actually, who's really talented, I can just say to her, you know, can you draw me a picture of this? And she'll show it to me and I'll say, yeah, but it doesn't have a surprise in it. So she'll go back and put a surprise in it. It'll be good, you know? 
it'll be really good. But um, <laughs> there's a lot for me. There's a lot more of things that have to be working before I can actually work. I went to the studio school, and so I worked with a, someone named Nick Caroni, who taught me a lot of what Hoffman taught. So I have training in that way, which is very conceptual. And I think you've talked about how you came out of a kind of conceptual background, but... My training was uh, was learning how to read art magazines and go to art galleries, yeah. really. <laughs> I mean, that and, you know, a fairly basic idea of criticism within the studio, learning how to talk about what you were doing. But it was very much oriented toward talk and ideas and looking rather than yeah. learning how to do things. Very much about the time, too, you know. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I don't think almost anybody teaches how to do anything anymore because nobody knows which thing to teach, you know, because so many different things are going on. And especially after pop art and conceptualism, it seemed almost corny to try to teach how to paint, right, in the old way. Yeah, it's not something I ever received or actually tried to do when I was teaching either. But then if you look at, at, at your work like The Bathers, you see that you've gone back and figured out a lot by looking at Cezanne, looking at Rousseau, looking at Matisse, right? Yeah, those were all important things to me to study. Yeah. I'd been doing more writing at that time when I started to think about those paintings, and I had recently written a couple of texts, one about Renoir's late work when that exhibition about that happened in Philadelphia, where I had to really think as in my writing mode, I had to think about what I actually thought about these things and what interested me about them. And I realized just how deep that went for me. It was a combination of the timing of what I was writing about and my own needs I suppose, personally and artistically at that point in my life that I needed something to shift. Because I certainly never thought before I embarked upon those paintings, I certainly never thought that it was a type of project that could ever even fit in my work, you know, that it would even have a place there. Well, that must have been a lot of the thrill of it, though, right? Yeah, it was. It was, it was like trying on a completely new identity in a certain way, even though that's never really true. And I think that whole sort of abstraction into figuration narrative is sort of tends to be very hard to talk about and usually is very oversimplified, but whatever. Something happened, and uh, my work did change quite a lot, I suppose, in that during that chapter, changed from one kind of thing to another, maybe. When you say abstraction into figuration, you mean moving from non objective to objective? Well, yeah. I mean, I think I have had the reaction from numerous people that it was a sort of surprising shift given where my work began. Although I think my work began with me thinking abstract painting is where it's at. Yeah. That's the most important thing going on. That's the thing I want to contribute to. It literally never even dawned on me that subject matter could be an important part of anything I was doing until one day it just, I realized that this division I was working with, this idea that I even knew what abstraction meant as opposed to some other sort of 
pictorial area where some sort of representation was taking place and that these were two entirely different domains. I think I believed that when I was young. It's a very crude map. It's oversimplified. It's not really true. Right. So even though I can see a point, year X, where Dunham made his first painting that had a recognizable image of a naked human body in it, it didn't feel like the kind of earth-shattering crossing over from one operation zone to the next that it might, the way people talk about it tends to make it seem like more of a dramatic change than the way I experienced it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I've been aware for from the beginning that my wish to be an abstractionist or whatever we call it, that that wish wasn't really, didn't really line up with the reality of making pictures. I think I knew that from the beginning. But I think I always knew that this this self-identity as an abstract painter was a little bit squishy and that it, in the end, didn't mean very much. And then my own work set out to prove it to me. <laughs> so that's how it felt. I mean, for me, I feel like one of the big problems with the way people talk about abstraction and figuration is that I think that all great painting is abstract, whether it's figurative or not. And that there's like the opposite of abstraction would be more something like mimesis and that the opposite of figurative would be non-objective. So like if you look at obviously someone like Cezanne or Matisse, their figurative work is extremely abstract. It's as abstract as it gets. Whereas someone like, I don't know, Andrew Wyeth off the top of my head, that's mimesis. It's not that abstract. It's like looking at something and just copying what you see with some rules about composition. But with, you know, someone like Matisse or Cezanne, there's a whole nother level of things going on where a lot of times the, the subject matter or the figurative aspect of it almost doesn't even make sense because the abstract imperative is so strong. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think so. Like, for instance, you know, with Cezanne's bathers, he's thinking about each bather as within an entire context. And if in the middle of the painting, what was someone's butt turns into their shoulders, and but he doesn't bother working that out completely. Do you know which painting I'm talking about? There's a, one of the bathers. No, not specifically, but I can certainly imagine it generically. Yeah. So, I mean, to him, it's like the whole abstract architecture is what's important. And the degree to which he needs to indicate that it's a figure, he does. But it's like, like with, you know, someone like Cezanne, if you see a hand, he practically never even finishes the fingers, you know, because what he's interested in is sort of the exchange between the negative and positive space that happens with the hand. So if you put in the fingernails, it stops the exchange. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. Or like with Matisse, the way that his figures end up looking like sometimes Neanderthals or or the distortions in the figure are sort of at the service of the negative space. No, I totally know what you're referring to, I think. I think my way of thinking about that relies more on the idea of the material they're working with. To me, one of the big developments in Cezanne's paintings has to do with this idea that the surface 
of the representation. I mean, there is a representation taking place. There's a picture of bodies, nature, they're in a place, but it's never allowed to become invisible the way it would in a more academically rendered image. It's Wait, what's not, not, what's not allowed to become invisible? The material itself. That in traditional academic rendering systems, it's almost like the goal is to make the physical surface of the painting disappear in favor of this full so-called illusionary perception. And in an artist like Cezanne, it's counter to all that. You're never not seeing the material at the same time that you're seeing this attempt at, at a representation of a figure. So that's a, it's just a different way of thinking about the same thing you're talking about. No, I think it, it's interesting. I never thought about it that way. I mean, I think about it more in terms of, for instance, like that the curve of a character's back is related more to the rectangle than it is to the other side of the figure. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's that's the maybe it's interesting that there are all these different ways to see what we're looking at and different ways to talk about it. Because I do. It's not a thought I would have, but I certainly get it when you say it. But, I mean, I see that in your work. I mean, I don't know how it, how you're thinking about it in your work, but I can see that, first of all, I think one of the things we both have in common is that we both work on our work for a really long time. And, I mean, like if you look at the photographs that uh, Lydia de Lectorskaya took of Matisse's paintings as they developed where it would start out as, you know, a really apt drawing of a, of a figure that has a lot of feeling, it's beautiful. And then he, he breaks it down and he makes it bigger and he makes it bigger and he makes it bigger and until he brings a geometry into it where he brings it into the realm of the rectangle. Instead of just being a picture in a rectangle, it becomes like a denizen of the rectangle. And then at the end, he manages to bring it back to the feeling that he had at the beginning, but there's a world of difference between the first image and the last image, right? And I feel like when I'm working, at least, that that's the same kind of process I'm trying to recapitulate, although I'm, I'm not always successful, but is to start out with something which, let's say, we could call it more anecdotal, and then bring it to a level where it's more structural and therefore a bigger metaphor in a way. And I feel like whatever way you're thinking about it, you're also doing that in your work. And I think it's something that's really important because I think a lot of people feel that when they're painting, the only way they can keep their painting abstract is if they don't work on it for too long. And that the more you work on it, the more sort of illusionistic is your word. Illusionistic is a good way to say it. The, the more they work on it, the more illusionistic it is, rather than going in the opposite direction, which is sort of like moving it into the more and more into the geometry and getting rid of surface and dealing it on the pure level of form and structure, color and light. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that's so, those of us that get stuck in painting for our lives, you know, that the fact that painting can operate in all these different ways at the same time, at least in the experience of a 
sensitized viewer or whatever, to me, that's its most beautiful characteristic, you know, that when I'm having a really rich experience looking at someone else's paintings, it tends to be, I mean, it could be for any number of reasons, but if there's a common thread to the experience, it has something to do with the simultaneity of perceiving subject matter, physicality, um, formal properties, like that equates with pictorial structure in some way, factor as in the actual handling of material and how that's done. And like your choices about making your paintings be pictures of what you want them to be. You're not involved with some set of conventions about representation. You're trying to find a way to do this as you go. The the Elena Sisto way, as opposed to the somebody else way. And that's another another really interesting thing about painting in our time is that there isn't any one standard. There's no like little group of boxes to check. And if you check these boxes, you know you're looking at a good painting. It's a much stranger area than that. <laughs> well, it's also a really open field. It's a really, really open field, right? I mean... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We all use these terms like good and bad, and so-and-so is good and so-and-so is bad, but no one knows what they mean. They're completely personal. There is no objective metric at all. Very freeing and also kind of scary. Kind of scary because your context shrinks in a certain way, right? Because there's not necessarily that many people that are willing to go on the trip with you. Yeah, well, I've had this feeling since I was young that if you're looking to engage with a some sort of mass human effect, don't don't choose right. painting. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a really bad choice to make. That it painting is by to me by its nature, enjoys a very small audience, an audience that's self-selected to want to spend time with these kinds of objects and think about the history behind them. And it's a very different kind of viewership from the viewership for television, oh, sure. for example. Sure. And I've been okay with that, you know, all along. I think it's one of the things that drew me to being an artist was that it was the community within which it art actually has meaning is relatively small compared to the culture at large. And I think that appealed to me. Still does, in yeah, a way. I can understand that. Elaine, I'm curious about the list. Uh, the things that we have in common? Oh, yeah. We never heard the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing on some of these things. Well, we know that we're of different genders, so we right. start with that. That's what we have in common, that but, we're not the same gender. Okay. Um, <laughs> we both love Wonder Woman. I think I'm not wrong in thinking that you love Late to Kiriko, Gustin. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I do. He's one of my favorites. And then Gustin, especially pink, black, and white. Abstracted figuration that's disembodied, moving more towards an ideogram or cartoon or a sign in a collageist cubist type space. Imagery that evolves from concentrating on the formal so that the subject matter can come out on self-consciously. Not sure if that's true of you, but I think it probably is. And that encourages associative thinking rather than logical thinking. 
process of constant revision over a long period and a process that's elliptical with a fair amount of chaos in it. Non-narrative. Humor. We're both involved with mythology, I think. Your work, I think, is more primordial, where mine, I would say, is more sort of atavistic. We could go back to that. But one thing I wanted to say that I also wanted to just talk about is the way that sometimes the abstract reading of the painting uncouples or derails from the narrative. And an example of that would be in your painting called Quicksand, the bather's leg passes behind a tree on the left, but the picture's composition at that point sort of needs to spiral to the right. And so you follow that, mm -hmm. and the leg never reappears on the other side of the tree trunk, right? Because you need to guide the eye the other way, and in terms of form and color rather than narrative. And maybe you even forgot about, initially forgot about the rest of the leg, or you just realized the picture didn't need it. So those are the, did I say humor? Using humor? Yes, you did. I think those are a lot of things. I don't know if I'm right about all of those. I think you're right. probably right about quite a few of them. Yeah. At least in terms of, as a, a take on my, on my thought about my own work. Yeah, definitely. Things that I was, that seemed to come up in those paintings, the series I called Bathers, there are numerous situations where limbs don't continue on the other side of trees or where I realized I had drawn two feet, like two right feet, and right. that that looked better in the painting than if I fixed it to make a left and a right foot. Or There are things like that that it bothered me. Like a couple of reviews that were written of exhibitions I had of those things that made it sound as though my interest was doing violence to human right. bodies. And that was never what I was thinking about, quite the opposite, at least consciously. But, you know, because these things are made up as I go, and because they really are about finding solutions to problems that I kind of make up on the spot, I allowed a lot of things to happen that you would call really almost epiphenomena of just making the thing, you know, like byproducts of just how it went down. You're not too far off to say, well, the painting didn't need the leg to continue. There must be some part of me that's also very taken with what that looks like. Like I'm not, I think it's another aspect of painting that's so rich for me is that I don't have to know exactly what I'm thinking about a given subject. It's enough to know that thinking about that subject is allowing me to make a painting. Yeah. And that within that problem, within that short-term project, like we're making a painting here, things that look right within the painting may also have both a formal, structural, and a psycho-emotional. There may be different reasons why that thing looks right. Could be like a Freudian slip. Yeah, that's a that's a perfect analogy, and I yeah I'm okay with that. I see painting, and I suspect you do too, as from the way you're talking, as a kind of artificial condition that you set up in order to trigger right. a behavior. And the behavior brings out pictorial material, psycho-emotional material. It can mean one thing to the person making it. It can mean a hundred different things to a hundred different yeah. people. It doesn't matter. 
But within the process of doing and making, the artist is just, you know, free within these different layers of association between what they're doing with material, how they're relating to a subject that seems to have appeared, how they're going to try to convincingly render that thing, what that is in turn going to tell them about what they think about the thing they're rendering. Yeah. You know what I'm saying. It's a cyclical process. But I, I think that concentrating on the painting in formal terms, for the most part, is... I mean, the reason I say my work isn't narrative is because it doesn't tell a story. It creates a scene or a situation, but it doesn't tell a story. And when I'm working, I never try to make two decisions that are narrative in a row or two that are formal in a row. I try to keep it in even dialectic so that it evolves itself where it wants to go. And that tricks out of me a lot of content that I almost don't even want to know. I mean, I do know it afterwards, long afterwards. But of course, my favorite thing is when I do something that I had no idea that I did that is kind of very revealing. Like an example is I did a painting once of a house being hit by a meteor and breaking up. And it wasn't until after it was bought and hanging in a museum that someone said to me, well, you do know that the house is broken up before the meteor hit it, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's like the house was already broken mm. before the meteor hit it, which was, you know, for me, it was a kind of a metaphor. But I think there's a lot of things like that that I find very exciting. And I try to put myself in that position as much as possible where I can do something that reveals something to me that I had no idea I was doing. But of course, I know I'm using myself as an instrument when I'm painting and wide open to that. Yeah, exactly. Was your interest in painting your original impetus to be an artist? Were they the same thing or did it take you a minute to realize that painting was your focus? Well, that's interesting that you should ask that. I was thinking about it this morning. When I was in kindergarten, my teacher told my mother I was very talented. And so ever since then, I have loved to paint and draw. But I never really realized I could be a painter until 1970, when I walked into the galleries of Boston University on the ground floor, and I saw the first show of Philip Guston's work. And I looked at it, and this was like, I didn't know anything about painting at all. I always hung out in the art room. That was really a safe place for me. My art teachers were, I was very close to them and they were very supportive of me, but I wasn't thinking about career. I didn't know you could get there from where I was, but I walked into that show of Gustin's late work and I just thought, oh, wow, you can do this. I want to be a painter. And then I just started studying, taking courses in art. But to, to make the decision to become a painter probably didn't come until I went to studio school, made the decision to go to the studio school. Mm -hmm. And I always knew that I was, this is a weird thing to say, but I always knew I was addicting myself to painting when I first started. I became more and more dependent on it, kind of for my sanity. I mean, I, st I drew really my whole childhood because I, I don't want to get into this too far, but I, 
I came from a very dysfunctional family with a lot of bad stuff. And the only way that I could get through it was by drawing. So I would spend a lot of time in my room drawing pictures of women covered with armor. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> You still have those drawings? Uh, I wish I did, but no, I think my mother threw them away. But anyway, I've come back around to that, actually. You know, I had it because I needed it, and it was really personal. And I think it saved my life, and that's why someone like Alan Frumpkin could not make head or tails of what I was doing because it was not professionally oriented at all. It was really about saving my psyche. So it's taken me a long time to learn the things that I've needed to learn about being in the world and about what other people thought painting was and how to communicate what I had to say in the most readable fashion or readable enough fashion. So I forget what your question was. I was curious if painting was your original primordial art interest or if you thought, oh, I think I'm an artist, and then you made your way to painting, which is what happened to me. Painting was not my primordial art interest. Mm. It was something I came to after a series of smaller life steps got me there. Yeah, it took me a long time to call myself a painter, and I rarely call myself an artist. I sort of feel like that's for other people to say. But it was really a scary step to take to go to art school and decide to do it. But once I got there, I knew I was in the right place, totally. I mean, when I went to the studio school, it was a fantastic place. You know, Gustin was around there, and some of the teachers were very academic, but a lot of them were really very exciting, and they were really great people. Other artists were really great. So once I got there, and I, you know, I was close to Mercedes Matter, who was the director, once I got there, I felt like I knew I was in the right place. But then when I got out of school, then it, the whole thing started all over again, because then it was a matter of like, how do I mesh with the art world? I mean, I never really thought about the art world. I thought about making paintings. So then that, that was a whole learning curve that I had to go through, which took a long time. It took a long time. So in this conversation about the choice to become a painter, to become an artist, earlier, Carol, you said something, there was something appealing about not knowing how to do something. And I think, one, I thought that was just an interesting idea or thought or like entry point into doing something, like going towards the unknown or the fear of like not knowing how to do something. But that also speaks a little bit to me to the sort of broader idea of being an artist and like what that looks like. Nobody really knows what the path is. Everybody's creating their own path. And so I feel like everybody, everybody who's an artist, everybody who's made that, that choice is kind of finding an appeal and not knowing how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably largely true. It took me a while to, to realize that most of the people I was hanging out with and the people whose ideas, older artists whose ideas I were interested in, they weren't really working on painting, at least not in any obvious direct way. And so it seemed to me like there was the possibility for a space for myself where I could just almost arbitrarily say, well, I'm going to go over here in this corner of the room and limit my activities to this for now. And 
see what the result of that would be. Because I really had no idea what a what I would even consider an interesting looking painting to come out of my own brain body. You know, I, I had no idea what that would even look like. But I think that's, you know, that's just a, maybe a more vivid case of what's true for every artist that they have to, there's a big difference between the activity appealing when you see it being done by other people and then kind of understanding what your own path into it is and what your own work is about. I mean, I've always said to students and to anybody that I never knew what my work was about until I made something and then I looked at what I made and then I tried to understand it in terms of what it implied for going forward. And that's when I might begin to have some idea of what I was actually interested in, as opposed to what I was just saying I was interested in, or all this blah, blah, blah that we all learn how to do all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you look at painting, no two painters even use paint similarly. Yeah. Yeah, like that there's nothing specific, no skills to learn particularly, no particular methodology to teach. It's all about finding your way into this big thing for yourself. Right. I've read that, I don't remember when the article was fun, but you were talking about the psychological or emotional content of your work and that you feel like you want to move in the direction of understanding that better. Not sure. <laughs> yeah. Not sure what you're referring to. And I'm, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I think that stuff that I, you say when people are keeping track of what you say, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> if it's exactly what one means. But, um, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Well, with the bathers, I mean, when I saw those, it never even occurred to me to think about them in terms of pornography. Well, I'm glad to glad to know that. First of all, they're so empowered. I saw it as Eden and the mother's body as making an equation between how the mother's body is the landscape of the baby or the child and Eden, but also the women are so empowered and they're so engaged in what they're doing it was sort of referring back to a time before we thought of ourselves as separate from nature. And also, mm -hmm. the reason why I don't think they have anything to do with pornography is because, this sounds sort of crude, but they don't seem to be about what's going in, they seem to be about what's coming out of the vagina, right? I always felt like those paintings were all about how we, we all come through the mother. And the, that coming through the mother creates the world in a way. Well, that's, yeah. in terms of my own interest, that's a very astute take. I mean, the reading of my paintings as having anything to do with pornography is uh, just of no interest to me. It's boring and mm. really just sloppy thinking as far as I'm concerned. It has nothing to do with where I'm coming from. And the wrestlers, I also don't see them a bit, so much as being about masculinity as I see them as being almost about two halves of the self, kind of isometric, and sort of a kind of isometric struggle with yourself, kind of. It occurred to me, because a couple of friends over time in my studio have asked me if I see those, the male characters in the paintings as all the same person or are they all different people? And I realized at first it seemed like a kind of 
silly question. And then I thought, actually, it's a pretty important question. Yeah. And it's the first time it occurred to me that there would be that way of reading it as this kind of almost, you know, renderings of a alternative personas within the same character. But I can't honestly say that was ever a conscious thought. It, I think consciously it really had a lot to do with with my having grown up male with a male sibling and we wrestled a lot and it was just part of a, there was a personal component in that it was mm-hmm. a sort of go-to activity for boys. But then there's also a cultural component in terms of its common appearance in art history, at least, you know, it's going back to classical statuary and things. It's an instantly recognizable subject that has a long, durable history in Western art. It also has a kind of personal component, as I said. I would never make a claim like my work is about masculinity, but I have to acknowledge, having made all these things, that it certainly must be partly about that because it's been quite a preoccupation, even though I don't feel like I'm illustrating any point of view or or attitude. Do you realize that I was the person that wrote you a note telling you should go to look at the photographs of the Greek sculptures uh, wrestlers? Yeah, I know exactly. And I, yeah, and I did it. Oh, you did? Was this, you said you sent a note. Was this over, was this digitally? Elena sent me an email suggesting that I go look at some photographs in a restaurant downtown that had to do with this. Were they Turkish? Is that what they? Istanbul Grill. Yeah. The Istanbul Grill. Yeah. On 14th Street. (laughs) Right. And it was such an out of left field and amusing recommendation that I, I thought it's probably something to this. So I did. And, and I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, but they're pictures of wrestlers in Greece and they're all greased up. Their bodies are all greased up and shaved and they're all wearing like little briefs, but they're, I don't know if you realize that part of the strategy was for them to pull the jock strap up of the, their opponent and give them a wedgie. Yeah, I assumed it was something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it, it just reminded me of his wrestler paintings, obviously. No, that was a sweet thing, actually. <laughs> it was, as I say, extremely out of left field and different from other things I would have been hearing about that work. So it was nice. Yeah. Did you ever look at those? I didn't know the pictures before, but I, you know, I did go in and look at them. Oh, yeah. good. I'm glad they were new to you. Yeah. I was just going to say this feels like a full circle moment that's an appropriate place to start to wrap up the exchange. And now you guys get a little bit more time to chat. Um, so one, thank you guys. This has been such an interesting conversation. And I, I love the list, Elena, <laughs> that sort of grounded us in the sort of similarities. And um, there's so many sort of interesting things that came out of it. You guys are both a part of the National Academy of Design, members elected in by your peers. That's why we're here in this podcast and under that context. So I'm curious how you guys think about that, how you think about your place in this collective, this collective of artists and architects, how you understand sort of what this is and what this is to you. You can go first. Well, I mean, I'm not sure what my place is in any of this, but I know that other artists' thoughts and opinions about what I do have always been the most important to me. Like, there's a way I think artists are 90% talking to each other. 
and it, then we can feel just fortunate if anyone from outside of that little loop is interested in observing this conversation that's taking place. So I guess just the fact that there's a an institution and a community that's based on the idea of artists recognized to be part of a community is a very nice thing. And I was very touched to be made a member and it's something I have a positive association with. So beyond that, I don't really know what to say. How long have you been a member? Must be about 10 years, mm. something like that. A little less, maybe. How about you? Probably about five or six, I think. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I look forward to the point when we have our space. Because I think, ultimately, right now, we have spent so much time looking for a new place, deciding about selling the buildings. And so I look forward to when we have a space that we can go to on an informal level and meet other artists there. Yeah, it would be nice if it had more of that aspect to it in in terms of what it is physically. It'd be great. Yeah. Well, they, have you? there's a space that's we should be in by May, right? Is that what you said, Adrian? The like sort of official public grand opening, we're looking at the fall, but like this summer we should be in the space. There will be, right. you know... The staff yeah. is also anxiously waiting to be in the new space and get out of the National Arts Club and be in a our own space, own exhibitions. Because we've been trying, we've been trying to do a lot of stuff outside of the, you know, with those constraints of you know, s exhibitions and programs and other locations. But we're excited to have a space for you guys to gather as well. Yeah, I think it could be diff very different than than it has been in the past because I don't ever think it was that in the past, a place for people to hang out. Seems like it was aspirationally that, but it was mm -hmm. never really able to be that. Right. Is there going to be a cafe? <laughs> <laughs> no cafe. I mean, you know, maybe in the long term plans that, you know, the place we're moving into, the idea is like, I think, five to seven years and plan for the long term future. I mean, it's an almost 200 year old institution. So when we talk about long term plans, we mean like long long term. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of work to do. You know, I, I say this as an artist myself, artists, we are great, but sometimes that long term financial planning has not been our, our best <laughs> asset. Um, and so that's the, like, you can teach yourself that <laughs> totally. And you can learn where to ask for help, which I think is also important uh, to be self aware of that. So I think as an institution, we've kind of go gone through those growing pains. And, you know, as somebody who's only really been associated on staff for two years, like, I'm just learning a lot about what's happened and sort of where we're at and where we're going. So I hope for everybody that it becomes exactly what everybody wants it to be. But I'm I'm excited that we can continue this tradition of artists. You know, it's an artist-founded organization that artists continue to carry the legacy. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, it's sort of amazing. It's pretty unusual, I think. I'm so glad that you guys are a part of it and that we were able to have this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, Elena, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Oh, I really appreciate the fact that you agreed to do it. In fact, <laughs> I gave him a list of five people and I said, my top choice is Carol Dunham, but he won't do it. So I had to, I did. I had to encourage her. I was like, let's just ask him. Unless you have no idea. I was like, you have no idea he's going to say yes. I'm happy to have surprised you. <laughs> I'm so glad it worked out for, for everybody. Thank you. Sake. You guys yeah. too, both. You were very helpful getting this all sorted yes. out. So thank you for that. Yeah.
Yeah, that was interesting conversation, right? It was. I really enjoyed the sort of defining or conversation around abstraction figuration, the way that Elena and Carol sort of see themselves in those roles and the way they kind of parse out the definitions. Yeah, it was it was nice to see, to see their different perceptions, but they were actually saying the same thing in different ways. It, it was really cool. Yeah, and I, I thought what was actually super fascinating, too, in relationship to that was this idea of talent or like how they understood themselves as a kid mm-hmm. and where Carol was like, yeah, nobody would have called me a talented kid. And this idea that, you know, Elena saying kind of basically the opposite, which I relate to sort of what she was saying is like, I was mm. the kid who was like, oh, she can draw. And then, you know, you kind of respond to the positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little Pavlovian of like, I can draw. I'm going to keep drawing the thing that I'm getting praised for, which ends up as a child being representational. It's the yeah. recognition of, oh, that's a dog. She can draw a dog. I'm going to keep trying to make the best dog. And it kind of puts you towards that path, which is not uncommon. Yeah. But it's really interesting, I think, to maybe approach this like journey as an artist from that place of like, that's not the reinforcement that Carol seemed to say he was getting. And they both ended up in this place of like abstract figuration and like what that means. Yeah, it was, I was, I was surprised. I feel like in my short artist career, um, I've seen more, I've seen it more common where it's like figuration to abstraction. I have rarely heard of someone going from abstraction to figuration and even though his is not per se like figuration but I thought that flip was like actually really interesting to see to hear him speak about that journey well I think even more so too is what they were opening up the blurry boundaries of figuration abstraction so it wasn't so much like this defined thing to this thing it was more of like like I really found it interesting the understanding of the figure not like fully removed from observation. And that is why it Mm. kind of functions in abstraction because it's not a form that adheres to the rules of our lived environment where light hits it and shadow Mm -hmm. is cast on the other side. It is a symbolic form and everything around it acts as abstract symbolic things Mm -hmm. in a composition. Yeah, exactly. And I, I liked how Elena was saying how all great, painting is like abstraction and like how she breaks up how that umbrella can fall into different those different categories but how like abstraction the opposite of abstraction is not figuration it's mimesis mimesis and I thought that was a really um, interesting take to to think about too totally I I think there were so many elements and while I don't necessarily think the way they think in my own painting I mean not necessarily like not at all like I I am sort of yeah. still in that childhood brain of like I make the the dog look like a dog <laughs> um but I do think that there's a lot of truth to what she said about all great painting is abstract because I think about that in relationship to color and thinking yeah. about color in the work and especially this idea of abstraction kind of being a part of invention and that like mm. the it's not necessarily about even though I'm really interested in the observed world and like taking color or shape or form from the observed world, like the invention comes from a place of abstracting what I'm experiencing or seeing, or, you know, it's, it's an opening of the world that you're creating in a painting. Yeah. It's like abstraction of experience or like, Mm. yeah. And I, I liked how, again, they were connected and exploring these two, like, interconnected topics but then also like bring it home to it is a very small audience (laughs) right (laughs) getting into these type of things well and it's this recognition that if you are deeply invested in this idea uh that's like 
removing itself from representation that you are acknowledging that there's probably a smaller audience that's Mm -hmm. understanding or maybe responding to what you're doing. And I don't know, that's maybe too much of a generalization, but sort of how they address that in the conversation is like there's a small audience, I think is so interesting and important in terms of this like letting go of an expected response. Yeah. And it's a bit of that undoing of that childhood Pavlovian <laughs> like mm-hmm. response of like, oh, this is good. And that there somebody else thinks this is good. And it's more of this like deep investigation for yourself and this small audience who's also invested in that idea. Exactly. Like everyone doesn't have to understand what you're doing. Like as long as you're it's authentic to your to you and your experience. Like totally. That's where the magic happens. And I feel like that's at the root of how I think about things as a teacher too, because it's not about pleasing me. That's not the goal I'm trying to get the students to. It's like what is it that you're invested in? Yeah. I also think, you know, the small audience, like I think this podcast audience is probably the small audience that they're <laughs> that they're playing to, right? You know, we're so invested in these conversations between artists that we know go into places that are a bit maybe esoteric, you know, mm-hmm. abstract, you know, not necessarily the blockbuster podcast that, you know, your grandma in Ohio, who, I don't know, maybe she's an artist, maybe she's listening, but like, we're not necessarily playing to the broad audience because we're, yeah. as artists, really invested in these deep, interesting conversations about art. And architecture. A hundred percent. And I think, again, this is just like a perfect way to end season four. Absolutely. It's it's a home run. Absolutely. I mean, love ending with paint. I guess we started with painters this season, ended with painters this season. (laughs) Uh, Got some architecture and conceptual artists thrown in the midst Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, A great season four. A great season four. Definitely take your time to listen to all of them again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, all the seasons. This one is a great season, but our previous seasons, we've got so many great guests. So definitely worth, you know, this summer going back to the whole stable of podcast episodes if you haven't listened to them yet. Also, make sure to like us on all the streaming platforms. Subscribe to us on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on. Find us on Instagram at National Academy. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, we'll see you next time. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting art and architecture, and we rely on your support to make programs like this possible. To learn more and to donate, visit nationalacademy.org. This conversation was recorded on March 8, 2023. Exquisite Corpse is written and produced by Adrian Elise Tarver and Anjali Owens and co-produced, mixed and edited by Mike Clemo and Wade Strange at See Through Sound.